The little words in the Bible are often the words that matter the most because they are the words that hold arguments together. And we have one of those very important little words standing at the very beginning of our passage for this morning. At the beginning of verse 18, you can look down there and you'll see it pretty much no matter what translation you're in. It's the word for. Now nobody starts a sentence or starts a new paragraph with the word for without it being intimately connected with what has just preceded. In other words, there is a relationship between today's text and last week's passage. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched. That for tells us that the author is giving to us a reason or a cause or a motivation or a grounds for an exhortation or a command that was previously given. So in order for us to understand the author's point this morning and understand the flow of the passage, we need to chase down what that exhortation is for which he is now giving us reason to obey. Okay, that dominant exhortation is found at the beginning of verse 15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Or another translation, see to it that no one misses the grace of God. In fact, all of verses 15 to 17 are a warning against missing the grace of God. Whether it be for doctrinal reasons, like doubts concerning Christ and concerning the new covenant in his blood, or for moral reasons, like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal and therefore became an example to all generations of immorality and godlessness. In fact, in verse 17, the author gave a reason or a grounds for the specific warning against being immoral and godless like Esau. Note the four at the beginning of verse 17. Okay, it works like this. Do not sell your birthright in order to satisfy the sins of the flesh. Why? For when you've eaten your fill, how do you know that you will be able to repent? And we worked through that last week. Well, now at the beginning of verse 18, we see another one, and I'm telling you that it it is giving us the grounds or the reason for the more general exhortation in verse 15 that tells us, do not miss the grace of God. Do not fall short or come short of God's grace. So that is the thrust of this morning's passage. Do not miss the grace of God. Why? Because you have not come to Mount Sinai, the mountain of law the mountain of judgment, the mountain of fear. Do not miss the grace of God because you have come to Mount Sinai, the mountain of grace, the mountain of mercy, the mountain of joy. The challenge of this text is in applying it in our 21st century Gentile context. The exhortation to not miss the grace of God followed by this vivid contrast between Mount Sinai, the mountain of the Old Covenant, and Mount Zion, the mountain of the New Covenant, would have fallen with thunderous effect upon first century Jewish Christians. They would have been well aware of how radically different these these two mountains, these two covenants were. The Old Covenant law and the New Covenant gospel. How clear was the choice for them between the law, the temple, the priesthood, the continual offering of sacrifices on the one hand, and on the other, the the gospel of Christ 
our great high priest who by the one offering of himself has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Early Jewish Christians must have felt as if they were quite literally standing in the valley between these two mountains. And to them, the author of Hebrews is saying, look at how vastly different are Sinai and Zion, the old covenant and the new covenant, the law and the gospel. Why would you ever dream of returning to Sinai's flames? And they would have gotten it. The application of the passage is not so simple for us. Because we have no temple. We have no priesthood. We have no sacrifices. We have no 1,500 year history with Mount Sinai that is all wrapped up in our cultural and ethnic and national and religious identity. So the question that we need to answer in order to get this text is, so how are we in danger of missing the grace of God? How are we in danger of returning to Sinai and forsaking Zion? I'll tell you how, by way of some testimony. I was raised in a, uh, in a church-going home, and I heard and responded to the gospel at the age of nine, and I, I was in church very, very regularly from that point onward throughout my childhood. And I was, by all accounts, a good kid from a good family, making good grades and just being, you know, good. But then, but then I stopped being good. And hardly anybody knew because I was really good at appearing good, even though I was not good. See, underneath all of this goodness, there was pornography, immorality, dishonesty, all wrapped up, cloaked in this straight-A, making, church-going, true-love-waits-pledge-making facade. But in college, this whole structure built on this shaky foundation all crumbled down, and by the kind and gracious providence of God, I was brought to repentance. And suddenly, I wanted to be good again. Not fake good like before, but really, really good this time. I, I wanted righteousness. I wanted holiness. I wanted integrity. I didn't want to hide anymore. I wanted purity. And so I began to study the word, and I went on mission trips, and I began dating a good girl. But then Ashley and I got married, and we moved to Memphis to attend seminary, and that began two of the most miserable years of my life. Didn't have anything to do with Ashley. That came <laughs> ten-year anniversary coming up at the end of this month. That came out totally wrong. Um, uh, no, the problem was not her. The problem was me. I, I was in seminary. I was immersed in the scriptures. I was training to be in the ministry, and yet I did not really understand the gospel. Not, not really, not deeply. The gospel I knew was still all wrapped up in this concept of being good. Now, of course, I knew that no one could be saved 
by their own good works. I knew the Bible. I knew Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We had that drilled into us. By grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And yet, day in and day out, I struggled to find any assurance that I was in Christ. I I did not feel accepted of God. I did not feel forgiven of my sin. I did not feel saved. More often than not, when I, when I attempted to approach God, whether it be in the morning or, or at church services or in chapel, I felt like I was approaching darkness and gloom and a whirlwind and flashes of lightning and rumbles of thunder. And I, I felt like Moses saying, I'm full of fear and trembling. My relationship with God was marked by fear and not faith. Fear of his judgment, fear of his wrath, fear that if I approached his mountain, his anger would burst forth and slay me. Does that sound familiar? It took nearly three years for me to realize what the problem was. And it all boiled down to this. I was approaching God as if he dwelt atop Sinai. I had a relationship that was grounded in fear and not in faith. Now, my years of sin had, had shattered the illusion of goodness in my own mind. In other words, I knew I wasn't good. Yet I still attempted to relate to God on the basis of my own righteousness. I, I couldn't bring to Him perfection... I knew I didn't have any. I had, I had sold that away years before. So instead of offering to him perfect righteousness or a perceived righteousness, I offered to him religiousness. I offered to him my attempts at being a good evangelical. Efforts which inevitably fell short. Leaving me to wander this all the time. Have I done enough lately? Have I read the Bible enough? Have I prayed enough? Have I shared my faith enough? Do I feel enough? Have I cried enough? Have I repented enough? Do I believe enough in order for God to love and accept me? Do you see what I was doing? There's a phrase for that, and it's found in chapter 12 and verse 15. I was missing the grace of God. Now, toward the end of my seminary days, God began to set me free with an astounding truth that I hope to unpack for us this morning. I needed to distinguish between the law and the gospel. I needed to distinguish between the old covenant and the new covenant. I needed to to learn the doctrine of of God's free justification by grace alone and by faith alone and in Christ alone. I needed to relinquish my own righteousness and more than that, my own religiousness and I needed to just sit and rest and revel in the free imputation of Christ's righteousness given to me by by faith only. That's what I needed, and it 
And when it came, it was the most gloriously sweet news I'd ever heard. What I needed was to turn away from Mount Sinai and to begin to relate to God from Zion. And that's what I want to do for us today by God's grace. Today we're going to see to it that no one misses the grace of God. We're going to see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God by worshiping at Sinai. In this regard, I thank God for allowing me to fall into such deep sin as a teenager. Now don't misunderstand me, I hate that sin. But had God not allowed me to go through that period, I probably would still be trying to offer to him my goodness. And make no mistake, my goodness would have damned me just as surely as my sin. Without that time in the far country by God's gracious protection, I likely would have continued to just blithely offer sacrifices at the foot of Sinai. The only difference is I wouldn't have heard the rumbles. And I wouldn't have seen the flashes of lightning. And I wouldn't have seen the smoke. And I never would have trembled in fear. And I never would have known what John Newton meant when he said, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." So if you this morning can relate to my story, if you are under the influence of what I call the goodness gospel, whether that takes the form of a self-righteous arrogance because you think you're good, or constant fear and dread because you know you're not. My prayer is that God would open our eyes this morning to behold the glory of Zion where the true saints worship in freedom and in peace and in joy. This morning we're going to follow the author's train of thought through this passage by walking through the contrast that he constructs between Mount Sinai, which is the mountain of fear, and Mount Zion, which is the mountain of joy. All right, so we're after the answer to this question. Why should we see to it that no one misses the grace of God? Here's the first part of his answer. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom, and a whirlwind. And to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. What the author is describing is the event of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai and the establishing of the Old Covenant with the nation of Israel. That event, if you want to take notes, is recorded for us in Exodus 19 and in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Exodus 19, 12 and following, Deuteronomy 4, 11 and following. You can go back and read that. That forms the backdrop for this passage. I want to point out three features that this author draws out of those texts and uses to describe Mount Sinai. First, he says that Mount Sinai represents the Old Covenant, which was a covenant of law. 
All right, the Lord delivered his people out of Israel, out of the bondage and the, and the misery of Egypt, rather, not Israel, out of Egypt. And he brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai where he established a covenant with them that constituted them as his holy nation. Now, the covenant that he made with them was a covenant of law. That is, it is a covenant that was conditioned upon their righteousness and their obedience to the terms of the covenant which he set forth. If they obeyed the law, if they kept the covenant, then they would dwell in peace and in prosperity in the land that he was giving them, the promised land of Canaan. They would be his people and he would be their God if they obeyed. But if they disobeyed his commands and if they transgressed his covenant, the Lord promised that he would drive them out of the land and he would deliver them into the hands of their enemies. And therein lies the essence of the old covenant, the covenant of law. Obey and you will be blessed and there will be peace between you and God. Disobey and you will be cursed and there will be wrath and anger and judgment upon you from God. Exodus chapter 19, I want to read to you verses 2 through 8, and you'll see where this conditional covenant is established. I think it will be up on the screen behind me. Exodus 19, verses 2 through 8. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and you shall tell to the sons of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Watch here. Now then, if, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant. If you will obey my voice, and if you will keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among the peoples, for, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These words you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words which the Lord had commanded him, and all the people answered together, fateful words, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Sinai represents the old covenant, which was a conditional covenant. It was a covenant of law, blessing, presence in the land, being the people of God, conditioned upon their obedience to the commandments, their obedience to the worship at the tabernacle. Their service to the priesthood, the sacrifices, everything associated with the old covenant law, that was the condition. Second observation, Mount Sinai, therefore, represents separation from God. See, the scene referenced in Hebrews chapter 12, all of that description, the fire, the darkness, the gloom, the whirlwind, the trumpet blast, he's describing the event of the ratification of this Old Covenant, when the congregation of Israel appeared before the Lord at the foot of Mount Sinai, and God gave to them the terms of the covenant. And from the very beginning, when this covenant was given to Israel, 
it emphasized that there is a distance, there is a, a separation, there is an unbridgeable chasm that exists between God and Israel, between the Lord of the covenant and the people of the covenant. Three times in Exodus 19, you can look it up later, verses 12 and 13, verses 21 and 22, and verse 24. Three times the Lord emphasized this. This is the beginning of his relationship with this nation. And how does this relationship begin? Like this. No one in Israel is to approach me. That was the basis of this covenant. No one is to approach me. No one in Israel, with the exception of of Moses and Aaron, was to approach the mountain of the Lord, lest they be slain when the wrath of God broke out against them. And everything associated with the old covenant, the tabernacle, the holy of holies that kept God behind the veil and the people out there, and they could only approach God through mediation of priests and sacrifices. Everything about the Old Covenant reinforced the transcendent holiness of God and His utter separation from His people. Third observation. Therefore, Mount Sinai represents fear. The fear of judgment. See, there was a dominant emotion evoked by this event at Mount Sinai. And that emotion is fear and dread. Exodus 19, 16, so it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then it says when God spoke to them from the mountain and gave to them the foundation of the old covenant law, which is the Ten Commandments, After he had given the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 18, it says that all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and they stood at a distance. And they said to Moses, you speak to us. Speak to us yourself and we will listen. But let not God speak to us or we will die. Fear. See, this is what it looks like to worship at Mount Sinai. It is to relate to God on the basis of law. If you obey, that is, if you are good and if you do good, you will be blessed. God will love you. But if you disobey, you'll be cursed of God, rejected, forsaken, cast away, damned. To worship at Sinai is to be separated from God. It is to be rejected and accursed because if you relate to God on the basis of law, you will never measure up. For as many, Galatians 3.10, as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse because it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Have you abided by all things written in the book of the law? Then you're under a curse. Unless someone has come and taken your curse away. If lawbreakers attempt to relate to God on the basis of law, all they can expect is judgment and wrath. Because the law was never intended to be a ladder by which we would climb up into heaven by our own works of righteousness. Mount Sinai can never be touched by mere men. 
And so those who choose to worship at Sinai, those who relate to God on the basis of law and works and efforts and religiousness and all of the things that I do to make God love and accept me, all they will ever see is darkness and gloom and a whirlwind and all they'll ever hear are rumblings of thunder and they'll see flashes of lightning and they'll, they'll only ever hear, do not approach me. To worship at Sinai is to live in fear and in dread of God's wrath and judgment because the old covenant of law made no lasting provision for the forgiveness of sins or for the cleansing of the conscience. That's why you keep trying and trying and trying and trying and you never feel clean. The law makes no provision for the cleansing of the conscience. No amount of good works, no amount of self-effort, no amount of self-righteousness will unbreak the covenant and bring to you forgiveness of sins and peace to your soul. So if this, if verses 18 through 20 describe your relationship with God, then I submit to you that you're worshiping at the wrong mountain. And you're in danger of missing the grace of God. Beloved, there is a better way. There is a better mediator. There is a better covenant. There is a better sacrifice offered by a better priest. There is better blood. So what we want to do in this second half is we want to open our eyes, lift them up, and behold Zion. Verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Let's walk through verses 22 to 24, and just follow the author as he describes Zion for us. First, I want you to notice that Zion is the city of God that we've been hearing about for a couple of chapters now. We're already familiar with this city. It was Abraham's hope. The ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to him of a land where God would dwell in the midst of his redeemed people. It is Zion of which the author spoke in Hebrews 11.10 where he said that Abraham was looking for a city that had foundations whose architect and builder is God. And in Hebrews 11.16 when he asserts that the patriarchs were consumed, they lived their lives by this desire for a better country. That is a heavenly one. He's talking about Zion. The city which God has prepared for his people. This is Zion, the city of the living God. It is the heavenly Jerusalem. Watch this. The city is now heavenly and spiritual. And we enter into Zion now by faith. That's why he says, you have come. Not you will come. You have come to Mount Zion because people all over from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation are entering and have entered into Zion now by faith in the blood of the new covenant. And our spirits will enter into Zion 
upon our deaths. We enter in now spiritually by faith, and then our spirits, our souls, enter into Zion upon our death. It is heavenly, it is spiritual now. But one day, Zion will be physically present in the new heavens and in the new earth. When Christ returns on the last day, when the dead are raised and when the judgment comes, then as we see in Revelation chapter 21, it says, the new Jerusalem, that's Zion, will come down out of heaven from God and all of the redeemed will enter glorified in spirit and in glorified bodies forever into the everlasting city. That's Zion. That's what he's talking about. And you have come now to Zion. Zion is a city for joy and celebration. I don't think the New American Standard gets it right when it says, and to myriads of angels, comma, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. It's two problems. Number one is I don't think general assembly is a good translation. And I don't think that it belongs with church of the firstborn that comes after, but rather with myriads of angels that come before. English Standard Version gets it right. If you have an ESV, you're looking at the right translation. It renders it this way, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. In other words, it's not just any assembly that's gathered. The angels are not up there, you know, twiddling their thumbs and, and, and bored And they're not up there somber and morose and sad. They are there in the fullness of celestial joy. This is the festal gathering. It's a gathering for the purpose of celebration and worship. It's what we see in Revelation 5, 11 through 14, when when the thousands upon thousands of angels are worshiping the Lamb and Him who sits upon the throne. We also see that Zion is a city for the redeemed, the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. It's us. It's the saints, the redeemed saints of of every age, all of those who will, by virtue of being the firstborn, that is the heirs of the Father's eternal inheritance, will receive the city. All the elect Everyone whose names have been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the Lamb who was slain. Zion is our city. We are the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. It's a city where God dwells, the judge of all, in the midst of his people, who are the righteous, the spirits of righteous men made perfect. At present, only their spirits dwell in the presence of God in Zion, for the resurrection has not yet occurred. But in the future, the redeemed will dwell in the city, body and spirit. Which then raises a question, with which we'll close. How? How can sinners come to this city? How can sinners dwell in the presence of the living God who is the judge of all? How do sinners become righteous and how are they made perfect? They couldn't. Unless Jesus is there. Which is why the center point of Zion Is Jesus the mediator of the new covenant? 
and his sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. It's that last phrase that we want to land on this, this morning because that's where the freedom is. That's where the joy is. That's where the grace is. And this is where the clearest contrast between Sinai and Zion lies. Mount Zion represents the new covenant, which is a covenant of grace. The old covenant, the covenant of Sinai said, do this and you will live. Obey and you'll be blessed. Disobey and you'll be cursed. It was a conditional covenant and Israel, being sinners, failed to keep it. The new covenant is not conditional. It's not like the old covenant of law. This is a covenant of pure and unmerited grace. Because in the new covenant, God fulfills all of the conditions in our place. He fulfills all of the conditions of the covenant in His Son. Jesus Christ kept the law in perfect obedience, thus fulfilling all righteousness in our stead. And He suffered the curse of the law, and the punishment for our disobedience in our place. So now we enter into this new covenant of grace, having both the righteousness that merits the blessing and having the atoning sacrifice that removes all of our sin. All the conditions of the new covenant have been met for the people of God, save one, and that's faith. And even this faith is provided to God's people freely by His Spirit through grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that faith is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. God does everything on Zion. Everything. In Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the righteous made perfect. Okay, highlight that phrase. The righteous made perfect. Watch this. They are not righteous Because they worked hard enough, read their Bible enough, repented enough, believed enough, did enough. They are righteous not on account of their works, their merit, their deeds, or their effort. They are righteous by faith and by the free imputation of the perfect righteousness of Christ. The goodness in the gospel of Christ is His goodness and not our own. Mount Zion represents reconciliation and fellowship with God. The the call of Mount Zion is never that of summary execution. That's what you heard at Sinai. If any of you attempts to approach me, you will die. That's what Sinai said. What does Zion say? Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you see how wonderful this is? Everything that Sinai could not provide and everything that Sinai was not, the new covenant is. The call of the new covenant is not draw near and die. The call of Zion is 
come near and live. On Mount Zion, you can come near because every condition for your approach has been fully met in Christ, who is your great high priest, which is why Mount Zion represents the joy of mercy. There's no fear on Zion. Mount Zion is not ablaze with fire and shrouded with darkness and gloom and whirlwind. It is wrapped in light and warmth and joy and peace. There's no fear of judgment on Mount Zion. There can't be. Our judgment has already been taken away in Christ. At Sinai, when the covenant was was ratified, the blood of the covenant was sprinkled upon the congregation of Israel. That's Exodus 24, 8, which signified this. If you break this covenant of law, your blood will be required. And every time they sinned, the blood of the covenant cried out for vengeance. It cried out for justice. It cried out for wrath. It cried out for the death of sinners. You see where I'm going? But in Zion, the sprinkled blood of the new covenant signifies something different altogether. It says that blood has already been shed for the broken covenant of law and that a new covenant has been mediated. The blood of the old covenant, the blood of Abel, cried out for vengeance. The blood of the new covenant, the blood of Jesus, cries out to God for mercy. Which is precisely why we sang earlier, Five bleeding wounds he bears, right? One, two, three, four, five. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Don't let that ransomed sinner die. That's what Jesus is praying for us at the right hand of the Father on Mount Zion. So, beloved, don't miss the grace of God. Don't dwell in fear and trembling beneath Mount Sinai. Don't approach God on the basis of law, of works, of goodness, of religiousness. Because if you do, all you will ever hear are rumbles of thunder and all you will ever see see are flashes of lightning and all you will ever sense is this overwhelming dread that says, don't approach me. Because you cannot approach God by way of Sinai. Listen, he never intended you to. This morning, I want you to hear the call of Zion. Hear it? Come further up. Come further in. Press into Zion, the city of God. Enter by the gates of grace and not of works. Put on the white robe of Christ's righteousness, of justification by faith alone. Revel in the sprinkled blood of Christ, which infallibly, unerringly pleads for your forgiveness and mercy and acceptance in the presence of God. Take your place among the myriads of angels who are gathered in in joyful, festal attire and are singing the praises of the Lamb and of Him who sits upon the throne. And sing the songs of the redeemed in the joy of the new covenant. Do not miss the grace of God. 
The call of this text to you, First Baptist Nixa, is to come to Zion, where there is joy and peace and forgiveness and the cleansing of conscience, and where there is wrath and fear and condemnation no more. My God and my Father, I pray that you will set the captives free. Oh, how sweet it is to worship you in joy upon your holy mountain. To not fear and tremble at the thought of your wrath bursting out against us because of our iniquities. To not worry if we've done enough or felt enough or repented enough or wept enough. To not think of ourselves at all but to be focused upon Christ, the mediator of the new covenant, and upon the sprinkled blood which calls out for our forgiveness and our acceptance and our mercy. So this morning, my Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray that you will lift the eyes of your people, turn them away from Sinai's flames, and fix them upon Zion where Christ dwells. I pray that in these closing moments of worship that we would experience a joy and a freedom that is either brand new to us because we've never been to Zion before or has been renewed within us because our gaze has been arrested once more and has been refixed upon Mount Zion. I pray for a spirit wrought freedom and joy in worship. Come and do your work in the midst of your people and set the captives free. I ask this in Jesus' name.